The Tim Hill Podcasts, ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, we're going to have a chat with John. John's going to tell us all about his life. So, John, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you could describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. It's all yours, John. All right. Well, I actually have quite an interesting birth story. Not that I really remember it, except that it was recounted in pictures and stories from my mom and dad. But um, I was born at 26 weeks uh, back in 1982. And back then, there wasn't really a very high, there wasn't a high survival rate for, for preemies born that early. 26 weeks, weeks was considered very early back then. I was, so I was born at home on a Sunday morning. My mom originally thought she had to go to the bathroom and realized, oh, no, I think the baby's coming. And my dad, my dad said, you know, there's there's just something that kind of uh, th- there's words that no man ever really wants to hear. <laughs> that is, I think the, I think the baby's coming when it's three months before you're due. But my dad, he had that, you know, he had the presence of mind to perform CPR with his pinky finger. He said I was born like I was blue. My, my eyes were shut. Ears were folded over like he said, you just looked like this little kitten. And uh, he unplugged my my nose with a little syringe and got my heart beating, you know, called for the ambulance and whatnot. And I spent the next uh, nine weeks on on life support in a neonatal intensive care unit in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that's uh, on the west coast of Canada. And well, look, uh, that's quite something for, for, for a bloke to to know what to do. Was he a yeah. medic of some sort? Well, see, my dad grew up, uh, well, my grandfather was an oil field geologist who traveled all around the world, um, which sound, sounds probably more glamorous than it actually is. For my dad, it was like, you know, you make some friends, you get yanked up, you move somewhere else. So you, get sent to, you went to boarding school in the UK uh, and whatnot. But uh, when he was in Australia, because my grandfather was, is from New Zealand. So when he was in Australia, my dad um, did surf life saving. And so the Australian surf lifesavers are, are actually quite famous for uh, for their skills and abilities. And so he had that in his in his background. Right. So yeah. that's that's kind of where we got that that skill set from. Yeah. I guess yeah. That's kind of lucky for you then. Well, well, it is. You see, because I think <laughs> with his presence of mind doing that, you know, because you could imagine if it was you know five or because we we didn't live in in like in a city we lived quite a ways outside of the city and so you can imagine if if i just laid there like not breathing uh maybe for five minutes or ten minutes before the ambulance got there or however long it might be you know maybe i would have survived but maybe i would have suffered significant brain damage Mm. from oxygen deprivation but because of his his presence of mind and cool head in the situation as far as I can tell, I don't I don't have any notable brain damage that I'm aware of. So uh, I feel incredibly fortunate in that regard. Mm. So did did he manage to? What did he do with the umbilical cord? Did he did he have uh, uh, to cut that or? No, no, no. He left that one on. And maybe you know what? <clears throat> that was probably beneficial as well because obviously it needs to be cut within about twenty minutes. But mm. um, it's now recognized that there's benefit to not cutting it immediately, but rather to leave it on and allow the uh, the placenta to sort of pulsate and uh, deliver some of that cord blood back into the baby as well. So increasing the blood volume yeah. a little bit. And so, you know, you think about, I, I think about all these little circumstances that took place that little details you'd never think about, but they come together in such a way that, you know, here I am yeah. today doing, doing this that I do. So. That's amazing. So you, 
you survived the first nine weeks of uh, <laughs> early yeah, birth. Yeah. And um, yep. so you came out of hospital, obviously, sort of after sort of finishing growing and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get it. I had to get to a certain weight before they would release me. And so, um, and, you know, like credit to like my mom and dad, they had a, they had a one-year-old. My brother's only a year older than me. Like I, I joke that I was an accident in every sense of the word. They were, you know, <laughs> they were, they were hoping for a daughter. Um, I think it was a, a failure of 1980s contraception. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and because they were hoping. disappointed they should have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my poor mom is, is trying to raise this one-year-old while having like uh, an infant in neonatal intensive care in a hospital mm. about 45 minutes drive away. And so, um, you know, and my dad was trying to, my dad was a pest control exterminator at the time, uh, which is a very busy job. And a lot of the work that he was doing is like after hours or before hours. So some really, really long days on his part. Mm. And so like for my mom, she wasn't able to get to the hospital every day. Uh, thankfully the nurses really took a liking to me, I guess, when you're a cute little <laughs> thing with big chipmunk cheeks or something. <laughs> so, yeah. but they, they visited as often as they could. And then of course, um, you know, uh, I guess they got a couple of months to prepare for, for when they would, uh, when they would take me home. And so, you know, it was quite, like I said, it was quite, quite an illustrious start. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty grateful to be, be here now doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's, you know, like these little things that someone did 40 years ago mean that I can be here today. Brilliant. So <clears throat> you survived that little episode. Yeah. You got yeah. home and, um, as you were growing up, what was your what was your brother like? What was your big brother like? Was he like a bit of a bully on you, or did he? No, did he not really at all. Look after you? Was it was was he really protective of you because you you sort of you came on the scene too early? In a, he was in a sense. We did have a rivalry. Like we were competitive, um, definitely. And and like so so I have a I have a real competitive streak. I, I've tamed it down quite a bit these days. As I go, maybe that comes with age, where I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, some things aren't worth getting all fussed about, but. Um, you know, he, he was able to do a lot of things and because I wanted to do them and, uh, but we, we were like two very different people. If you see us together, you wouldn't recognize us as brothers. We we're from the same mm. parents, but like he got all like one side of the family and I got all the other side of the family. And so, um, but we, we, we usually arrive, like I, I wanted to learn how to walk. I wanted to learn how to read everything he did. I wanted to do like when he went to kindergarten and he started kindergarten at four, well, he was mm. like four, four years and 10 months old kind of thing because his birthday's in November. Yeah. So he actually got to go to kindergarten very early. And even though we're only a year apart, I couldn't start kindergarten until two years later when I was almost six because oh. my birthday's in January. And so if I'd been born, if, if I'd been born in December, I would have been able to start a year earlier. Mm. And so it, it's interesting because, you know, in a sense, he, he got a little bit of an advantage in that he got to graduate say, 17 years old. And I, I had to graduate 18 and a half years old because of a, <laughs> a technicality around, around dates, but we're only 14 months apart. And so, mm. but yeah, we, we, we did a lot of things together because we were close in age. We were pretty good friends, uh, but we kind of, sports was the thing that, that kept us together. We, we definitely liked that. Um, but I was more interested in sort of uh, building with Lego and doing things with my hands and, you know, had this little tool set or maybe I was building cities mm. in the sandbox and things like that. Whereas he was kind of more quiet and interested in reading and uh, sort of more educational stuff. So I was more practical kind of hands-on and he was more like, like a bit of a, a, a bit of a bookworm. Yeah. Bit of a swat, was he? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, except we both. Oh, here's the other thing. We both were fans of uh, professional wrestling <laughs> back in oh, the day. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, this is back in the '80s again. You know, like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate oh, yeah, Warrior. Yeah, the and, WWF. Yeah, yeah. You know, Honky Tonk Man, the Bushwhackers, like Andre the Giant. Yeah. You know, all these, all these large. You know, when you're a kid, they're these larger than life characters. And uh, you know, it's interesting because, like, down the road, I actually did a stint as a pro wrestling ring announcer. And I absolutely loved it. It brought back childhood memories. And I just, I really gained a new appreciation for sort of the art of the theater, because obviously that's what it is, is theater. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But there's a real art form to it. And boy, these guys take a beating. But back then, you know, there were just these larger than life characters. And uh, I remember getting getting to see them in in real life, like in, in Vancouver uh, one year mm -hmm. when I was like nine years old. And that was just the most amazing thing ever. Because you're like, wow, these are your heroes, you know? Well, well we used to have, what I what was Saturday afternoon wrestling when I was a lad, on yeah, the, yeah, on the telly, and we had heroes like uh, Mick McManus, um, yeah, Giant Haystacks, Kendi <laughs> yeah. Masaki, Les Kelly. Yeah. Les Kelly yeah. was one of my favorites. He, he okay. was really really funny in the ring. But, <laughs> but this yeah. is way way before the old WWF stuff. This yeah. was Saturday afternoon wrestling in England. Well, there, there's a history back there. You see, because I mean, when I it was a friend of mine who who was a, a, a pro wrestler and uh, he's also a paramedic by trade. And he, he doesn't wrestle so much anymore. I mean, uh, obviously, the circumstances of the last couple of years really put aside sort of live events and he really mm -hmm. quite misses it. Um, it's, it's not an easy life. It's a, almost a bit like a carny life. You know, you're on the road a lot. You're not like most people aren't making a lot of money. You're doing these independent circuits. You go, you do it, but you only do it because you love it for most people, yeah. because you probably aren't going to make it to the big show. And, uh, but where it emerged was, you know, these traveling like circuses and carnivals and things, these guys would have bare knuckle boxing fights, but they came to realize that, well, we can't like, you know, beat the tire out of each other every night. <laughs> like we're just going to kill each other. So what we need to do is we need to start scripting this. And, you know, one night you win and one night I win. And, uh, you know, we, we put on a show, but just for our own health sake, we don't beat the tire out of each other. And that was kind of the birth of what we now know as professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. Well, when, when I was growing up as a kid, I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s. Um, yeah. And just down the road from us, there used to be a, a, a occasionally the gypsies would come in and they would. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, they would sort out a, a bare knuckle scrap and <laughs> it was brutal. I mean, I, the, oh. these guys punched themselves almost to death. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Bare knuckle fighting's not a lot of fun. Especially if you're on the losing side. <laughs> well, no kidding. Well, there there was a movie about that uh, maybe twenty odd years ago. Uh, what was that called? It had Brad Pitt. In well, it. anyway, any which way but loose. That that would have been one of them. I was thinking of another one. Um, it it was one of those like famous like sort of gangster movie directors. You know, uh, Snatch. I think is what it was called. All right. And so so Brad Pitt was a uh, pikey. I guess they called them. Yeah, uh, I don't. I, I don't know if that was a, an, an insult or if that was like a term of endearment, but they they called them pikeys, and you know, you, they would yeah. go in and get into these fights, and um, they would they would sort of make it look like they were losing, get everybody to place bets on on the mm. other guy winning, and then you know, he'd all of a sudden bounce back and knock him out cold, kind yeah. of thing, and and they'd all make off like bandits winning their <laughs> bets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so it's funny because gypsies don't have a they don't have a great reputation, and like my brother's married to a Romanian, and. You know they they got married in in Romania, and I spent some time living in Poland as well. And and 
you know, they actually have a gypsy king. I don't know. Many people don't mm. realize this. Uh, but the Gypsy King is like a multimillionaire, but it's it's yeah. off the backs of basically steve stealing and thievery and you know reselling what they steal and so it's it's they do it's, say that Romania is a country full of thieves. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and it's kind of it's kind of too bad because I mean of course I, I recognize they're, they're human beings too, but the way that mm. they sort of operate in our society is kind of closer to the way that a parasite operates in that like a parasite just takes from the host but it doesn't give yeah. anything back, but it's not enough to like the parasite doesn't, doesn't kill the host because that then it couldn't survive. So it's like, but they just have this propensity for it, taking and taking and taking and never offering anything back. And so like at my brother's wedding, you know, they were, they, in Romania, you get married in the courthouse first and have just a little sort of a little celebration on the sidewalk because mm-hmm. not everybody can cram into the, into the courthouse. And then you go to the actual you know reception event center. But outside the courthouse, there was these gypsy children trying to come up and steal the cookies and things. And it's like, this is my brother's wedding. You know, <laughs> could you have a could you have a little bit of respect instead of trying to pick people's pockets and steal the cookies <laughs> while we're trying to have a wedding? And uh, so for me, I was, of course, really frustrated because I'm like, this is my brother. I've flown, you know, halfway across mm-hmm. the world to, to be there, uh, to, you know, to be the best man at his wedding and so on. And there, you know, and I think actually some of the gypsy parents even looked a little bit embarrassed. So they were kind of off to the side in the shadows, yeah. kind of looking a bit embarrassed by the behavior of their kids. But the kids were really rude. Like they would swear and they would just give you the finger and like they just didn't care. <laughs> and so it was it was really like, like I look back now because uh, I'm very interested in behavioral psychology. And I think, you know, mm. it's really interesting to kind of observe how they how they function in in society. So, yeah, that was that's quite a fascinating little sidetrack there. Yeah, well, I got a little sidetrack on on Romania um, many, many years ago um, when I was between the army. Um, I did some driving and was driving from um, Dagenham, Forza Dagenham to Forza Istanbul. Okay. And we used to come, we used to come back into um, Bulgaria and load up with wine. And right, right. Okay. They, they always said, if, you, if, if you're going to transit Romania, don't stop anywhere for the night. Keep going. Interesting. So anyway, this, this, this lad, he was told, don't stop in Romania. <laughs> you're asking for trouble. So he's parked right. up in the lay-by. He's woke up in the morning, started up his truck, got to move off. Nothing's happening, so he's got out to kick his tires that weren't there. <laughs> oh, man. His, his, his whole truck was up on bricks. Yeah, and, and the funny part about it that the Herberts that nicked his tires sold him his <laughs> tires back. <laughs> oh, like so, did he know that he was buying his own tires back, or oh, yeah, what? He, he, yeah. he was aware of that, and they fleeced him absolutely, fleeced him. Because <laughs> oh, you used to get money, money to, to when you drive down there because everything was cash, right? So right, you, right. You buy your diesel for cash and all the rest of it, so they know right. you've got about 1200 pounds on you, <laughs> right? Yeah, no kidding. Um, that's interesting because, yeah, my brother had a house in, in Romania, um, they, they eventually sold it, but you know, they had to have like this eight foot fence and like razor wire across the top yeah. because. If nobody was in the house, because they had a really nice garden and they grew a lot of food, they did, you know, and uh, people would be coming in there trying to steal the food. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, in, that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it might be a funny story to look back on. Yeah, but, but I don't think it was oh, for him. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you know, for, for him, I think I'd, I'd be pretty cheesed if, mm. if, if that happened to me. So, yeah. 
Anyway, let's get back on track because I think yeah. we, we've strayed off the, the path quite a long <laughs> way, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so your junior school, your, yeah. your junior school, how did that go? So you know, you, you're more practical than your brother. Your brother was a bookworm. How yes. did you fare during, during school? Well, you know, I have this, this little trick, and that is that I have uh, quite, a, quite a good memory. Um, for facts and information. And so the way the education is set up, or at least the way that it used to be set up, it, it probably is somewhat similar to this day, but, you know, standardized testing is, is how you get your grades, really. And so I could absorb material pretty easily and not have to study and just get great <laughs> grades on tests. And that, that really annoyed like a lot of my classmates in a sense, because back then, of course, it wasn't cool. It wasn't, you know, to get good grades, you were like a nerd, you were a dork, you yeah. were you know, geek, uh, these things, they weren't cool terms the way that they kind of are now. Like they've been sort of taken by segments of the population and made into something popular. <laughs> but back then it was like, no, you know, nobody liked it when you got good grades and when you, you know, yeah. get top of the class all the time and kind of worse when it's like, you didn't really try. <laughs> so, um, and I say, I can't, I can't even take the credit. I got my brain free of charge. Like I didn't, yeah. you know, uh, my dad, he's got a memory, like an encyclopedia for like facts and history and things like that. And so I'm like, I, I can't even take the credit, but it just meant that I didn't have to work that hard going kind of through high school, uh, or through all the school really. So I did, I did get into quite a few fights, um, as a younger child, probably between the ages of six and 12, that sort of span of my life. Uh, I was a pretty hot tempered kid. Um, I, I look back now and I realize, like I, I would probably categorize myself as an empath. So somebody who feels emotions quite strongly feels other people's mm. emotions back then. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. All that happened was like these, these feelings would boil up inside of me and <laughs> they had to come out somehow. And so it would come out in the form of temper tantrums and, and getting into fights and so on. Um, mm. so I think they call that HDHD now or something. Isn't it? it's, it's probably something along those lines. Yeah. I, I do yeah. think I have a bit of an ADHD, uh, brain my, my brain jumps around a lot, but I've mm. never been diagnosed with it or, or, or anything like that, but it probably, it's why I'm, I'm, you know, better off as an entrepreneur than trying to work, work for somebody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but interestingly there, there came a point in time where I started to develop a greater awareness of other people. And what I mean, what I mean, where I'm going with this is I started to feel bad about getting into fights. So, because mm. uh, I'm a pretty big guy and I was a pretty big kid and I never necessarily went looking for fights. I didn't necessarily pick fights, but I didn't back down from one either. And uh, I, I won a lot more fights than I lost. And back then when you got into a fight, when you got into a dust up, it was like when you got knocked down, when you're on the ground, the other guy won. There was mm. you know, a little bit of honor in fighting back then. Nowadays, it's like, you'll get 10 guys coming after you and shank you or something like that. If you, if you get into a fight with one kid and you win, but back then mm. it was like, you get dusted up, you're, you're on the ground. It's like, look, I win, you give up, you say, uncle, that's it. You know, we carry on. And so, but I remember a couple of times, like I, I really like hurt a kid pretty good and I felt really bad about that. And so this was, this was me, you, you know, when I, I look back and I think about sort of the way that our brain develops emotionally, you think mm -hmm. about going from being, say, six years old to 12 years old. There's a real shift in awareness that the world doesn't just revolve around you. And so I started thinking about like, oh, my gosh, this kid's going home. He's like all busted up and bleeding. I, one time I think I busted a kid's nose like oh, I feel kind of bad, like thinking about that. And so I realized I didn't want to get into fights anymore. I had to figure out, you know, some other way than just 
some other outlet than just like getting angry and flying off the handle. And, and there's this real irony in a sense, because at school itself, like I, I appeared to be like a model student, you know, I'd show up, I'd get good yeah. grades, all this kind of stuff. And then after <laughs> hours, I was a scrappy little kid getting into fights. As long as you're off school property, they couldn't do anything about it. Right. So mm. we go off school property and get in these scraps and have these dust ups. And uh, so on the one hand at school, it's like this kid's like a perfect little angel. And then he got off school property and this kid's like a little <laughs> backyard. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, but I, yeah. So I, I kind of like figured I'm going to, I'm going to stop getting into fights because I don't like where this is potentially going. So it's really interesting kind of that shift in maturity that happened there. Hmm. So you moved on then to, to junior high or high school. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's where I got into sports. I think that became my outlet. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. So what sports did you get into? Well, I, I really wanted to play rugby, but my dad, having grown up in New Zealand and Australia, was like, you're not playing rugby, kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're going to keep your nose and ears the way they are. Because <laughs> uh, I suppose being a big lad like you, you're going to end up in a pack. Yep, you're going to end up in the front small, row of the scrum. Small lad like me, I'll just put the ball into the, to the scrum. I don't know what yeah. I do with it once it goes in. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. mine when it pops out again. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. He's, he said, you're just going to end up in the scrum and you're going to end up with cauliflower ears and a busted nose. And he's like, no. You're not, you're not playing rugby. Um, so, and we, we lived in a smaller town, so we didn't have, for us, football is like American football. Yeah. And, and so uh, that wasn't an option for us. Our school didn't really have enough money for uniforms and equipment. That was never going to happen. So it was basketball and volleyball for me. Same sort of thing with hockey. Hockey was fairly expensive and you'd have to go to like other, other places to play because we didn't get an arena until I was, oh, until I was like 17 years old, our, our little city our little town built an arena eventually, but so there, there was no hockey, there was no football. So it was basketball and volleyball for me because those are sports that didn't require a whole lot of equipment. Mm. But uh, so I was, I was kind of a, my hand eye coordination wasn't the greatest, but I was a big guy. So yeah. there in volleyball, I was like, I was the guy that went to block the other guy, the other team's like power hitter who was trying to spike the ball, for example, <laughs> you know, and uh, in basketball, I was kind of, we would call it a power forward. So I was, Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was in and around the basket wrestling for rebounds and things like that, kind of a more, uh, uh, physical type player. And so it was kind of a great way to get my aggression out, I guess, really. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So, so you went through, uh, high school then doing that. And I guess with, with your brain, you managed to, to keep your grades up without doing a huge amount of work. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I even landed a couple of scholarships, which uh, not Ooh. a lot. Um, and and to, to be fair, I mean, even back then, this is going like I graduated in the year 2000. And out of I think there was more than 250 scholarships that were available for for like our graduating class to apply for. But I think I only qualified for about uh, 12 or 13 of them mm. because I well, frankly, because I, I was white and I was male. And that's not a knock on anybody. I understand the idea of wanting to support disadvantaged or, or perceivingly disadvantaged, disadvantaged members of society. But I felt a little bit, a little bit gypped. It's funny because that term actually comes from gypsies. Um, yeah. But I felt a little bit gypped that I was only able to apply for a few of them simply because I was, mm. I was white and I was male. Because um, we, we didn't actually grow up with a whole lot. Like my parents got by on not very much and by growing a garden, by canning and um, like there were some pretty lean years through the, through the nineties with my parents. And I can tell you what, they, 
they did a wonderful job. Like my mom sewed our clothes. Like they just found ways of making it work with almost mm -hmm. nothing. And so here I was like, I didn't grow up with a whole lot, but I wasn't able to apply for scholarships because I really wasn't the right sort of demographic characteristics. And so, um, but I ended up going to uh, University of Victoria. So that's on Vancouver Island. I got on the West coast of uh, British mm -hmm. Columbia and uh, <laughs> here I was going to a university that had 10 times more people than the town I grew up in. <laughs> so a town I grew up in at that, at that time had maybe 2000 people as a population. I'm going to this university yeah. with 20,000 people. And I joke that <laughs> the, the university had more attractive girls than my town had people. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, that was, that was quite a shift for me. I was like 18 year old, you know, young guy, yeah. just uh, full, full of, uh, full of testosterone and being like, Oh my goodness. Like, I've never seen so many like amazing girls in like one location. <laughs> so you spent, you spent your college years chasing crumpet, did you? Well, a, a little bit of that. I mean, I, I was a, I was a chemistry and music major actually. And it's kind of a funny thing because I really like music and it turns out I like, mm. I'm pretty good at math and I like languages as well. They all seem to tie in together. Um, so, but after a year of studying music, I realized, you know what, I'm probably not going to make much of a living off of this. You know, my idea had been like, maybe I'd get into being a music producer because I really liked the idea of being able to take someone's work and sort of tweak it and refine it and, and turn it into something even more sort of robust and beautiful. But I realized like, I, this is probably a path to nowhere. And I realized I didn't really want to be a music teacher. And I picked chemistry because I thought biology was too easy. Physics was a little bit mm -hmm. hard. And chemistry seemed like the middle round, <laughs> but chemistry is actually pretty <laughs> tough too. Yeah. But, but I ended up getting into um, marketing psychology of all things. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I need to do something s sort of related to business, I guess. And uh, I didn't realize, of course, that down the road, having chemistry and marketing psychology paired together was going to lead to a place that I got to where it was a really good fit. But we'll, we'll leave that as a teaser for right now. Um, mm -hmm. I also, uh, in that time, joined the Navy Reserves because I thought I need a little more adventure in my life for some reason. <laughs> and uh, and that and, obviously helps pay for the tuition, does it? Um, it paid for a portion of it. Mm. So if I if I had committed to, to the way that the military works in Canada, I imagine it's probably very similar in the UK. But if I had committed to um, full time military, they'll pay for full university, but you owe them five years after mm. that, a minimum of five years. So. Yeah. Which looking back, I'm like, that actually would have been brilliant because he, I would have had no student loan debt plus five years of relevant experience coming out at 27. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't go that route. Um, so I went the reserve route where they would pay a percentage of your tuition every year, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I went full time Navy after I finished my university. Yeah. So so you, you left university and then went to the Navy. I did. Yes. That so did, that, that that wasn't very clever, was it? No, not really. You should have committed uh, to the Navy to start with. <laughs> I should have. And Man, you wouldn't have I, had a student, student oh, debt. I, I look back and I'm like, oh, you know, the whole hindsight is 2020 thing, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm at this place in my life now, but I think, boy, if I'd have known then what I know now, I sure would have done things differently. But back yeah. then, try to convince me of anything. And I was a headstrong dummy, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it, it's, you can, you can be book smart and, and still like foolish just yeah. because ignorant of life experience you know you thought you had it all figured out back then well well don't beat yourself up too much because we've got the leader of our opposition and he's really 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 good at hindsight yeah. 
and sitting on the fence. Okay, <laughs> that's you know. You might have heard of him. Well, maybe I should. Maybe I should have been a politician. <laughs> but I think the problem is to to, to actually. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but to actually succeed as a politician, you have to be willing to lie, give people yeah. what they want to hear, versus tell them the truth of the matter. And it's almost like a. Maybe you don't set out to do it deliberately, but in order to succeed, you can't, if people really don't want to hear the uncomfortable truth. And so they're more, you know, we have, we have a leader that just told people a whole bunch of sunny lies and yeah. we're in a really tough spot. I mean, globally, we're in a tough spot anyways, but so yeah, yeah, maybe it's good. I'm not a politician. We'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, um, illustrious leader over there. He's, <laughs> he's not making a lot of sense at the moment and he's, He's certainly he upset has, really. an awful lot of people just lately with his um, what draconian, um, yeah, yeah, editorial. I mean, yeah, what's going was, on with the poor truckers? Yeah, it was really surprising. And and the, the way that I think about this is a healthy democracy should be able to tolerate peaceful protest. Yeah. And there, there's this there's this sort of trick that people pull in the media where they just start to throw around labels and they just distort the truth of what's happening. But what was yeah. really interesting is the media, the legacy media was being called out for, for a lot of this sort of fraud because you have people on the ground with cell phones documenting all of this. And they're going, this yeah. is what's actually happening here. And this is what the media isn't showing you. The, the issue here is that it really starts to create mistrust in our public institutions. And when we start to create mistrust, like I believe we've all had like quite a bit of cynicism around like sort of government and things like that. Yeah. But there's a degree of cynicism and mistrust that maybe didn't previously exist. And it's because we're being shown the gap between what's presented to us and what's actually happening. And we're able to verify it for ourselves. And so it's a, we're, we're living in a really kind of interesting time in history. But yeah, our prime minister, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, he says all these nice things, and then behind closed doors, he's implementing these laws that that yeah. for, you know is putting a noose around people in a sense. So it's it's you know it's you know it's terrible when something like an overt war is happening, like what's happening over in Eastern Europe. I've lived over in Eastern yeah. Europe, but here it's much more subtle, and mm. I think banking on the fact that people now have very short memories because we live in the age of the never-ending now with social media yeah. stuff that. Stuff that happened a week ago is forgotten unless you're a politician. They dig up something from the 90s to smear you with. <laughs> so, well, if, if, if you look at the news over here, COVID's finished. Right. All that of a sudden, we totally exist. forgot about it. That, it doesn't exist that doesn't anymore. doesn't happen anymore. Um, Afghanistan has gone away. Nobody talks yeah, about that. Yeah. 25 million people starving to death in Afghanistan. It's a, it's a bigger crisis than than I think that's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, and then there's the Saudi-Yemen conflict. on radar. Yeah, well, like the Saudi-Yemen conflict where there's, I think, nearly 400,000 people have died. Yeah. It, it, so it, I think what it, what it highlights is we're, we're sort of being shown this is what you're supposed to pay attention to. And a lot of people go along with it without really realizing they're kind of being played. Mm. And it's, it's, it's yeah. tragic. Because you look at who who benefits, because that's the thing, you know, and really, you know, again, the more, yeah, like the more I, I guess maybe it's the older I get and the more I really try to practice the skill of critical thinking and not necessarily just reacting emotively and, and Mm. so on. It's, it's, it's really a shame what we see emerging because I'm like, yeah, if you look at who benefits, so, so media is not beholden to the public. 
right? They're not beholden to the people they're presenting information to. They're beholden to the people who pay the bills. And the people who pay the bills have an agenda. And because they have an agenda and they finance them, they can say, this is what you, this is how you need to present this. Yeah. And so it's, it's like a fatal flaw in the system in terms of how it functions. And I don't see it getting corrected anytime soon. No. And, and, and I think that's, that's a problem in, in most democracies at the moment. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's the money that's talking and it's the taxpayer that's, that's coughing up and, and losing yeah. out. And yeah. that's, that's where we're going with that. Anyway, we, yeah. we've sidetracked again. I mean, you're very good at tracking off. So, <laughs> it's that yeah. ADD brain. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I was I was in the Navy okay. and I spent... So, let's, let's reel you back in. Yeah, yeah. I spent... We, we've uh... now, we've, we, we now left, left college and we've joined the Navy. Yeah. Uh, without them paying for your tuition at the university. So, yeah, I kind of had to fight a little bit for that too. You know, <laughs> it was like, yeah. yeah, I had to chase the bureaucrats down for, for money a little bit here and there. But um, I was, I was a Marine engineer, um, which sounds a lot more exciting maybe to people than, than it actually is. Mm -hmm. You know, here I thought I was kind of getting in, in a sense, like an engineering apprenticeship. So being, you know, being an actual yeah. engineer. And so in the educational part of my trade, yes, we learned the principles of marine engineering. In practice, we were basically glorified mechanics. <laughs> so mm. we had, to, uh, of course. So what, what level did you go in at? Did you go in at uh, 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 ratings level or did you go in as an officer? Uh, what we call non-commissioned. So I guess that'd be ratings level. So yeah, right, it started right. out as a, uh, I think they've changed it now to sailor to be gender neutral, but it was, uh, you know, um, ordinary seaman. Uh, yeah. And then there was able seaman, able seaman, leading seaman and master seaman. And then you get into petty officer, second class, yeah. petty officer, first class and so on. So I went in as a, as ordinary seaman and uh, so you're nothing. You got no, no rank on you whatsoever. <laughs> Not even a hook, you know, you're just, just a blank slate. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, you know, I kind of, and because I liked working with my hands, I guess there was an element of it I liked, but of course, being an engineer on a ship, it's like, you have to be able to fix everything and you have to understand how every system with moving parts and working, you know, parts and fluids yeah. and things like that, how it works. Cause when you're in the middle of the ocean, you, you got to have a pretty big yeah. problem if they're going to fly it can't at, go uh, alongside, get it fixed. <laughs> right. And so, you know, if they're going to spend the money to fly someone by helicopter out to your ship somewhere, you better have mm. a pretty good reason for spending those dollars. You know, what's really fascinating, again, is sort of this government-private contractor relationship that was developed. So there were certain pieces of equipment on our ship that we learned about. We knew how, to, you know, in school, we would tear them down and rebuild them. Okay. But on the ship, we're not allowed to touch them because part of the private contract for putting those pieces of equipment on the ship was only our technicians are allowed to touch those and service them. And so yeah. we could sit there and diagnose the problem until the cows come home. But if we turned a wrench on these things, <laughs> it would be like a breach of. Yeah. So it's very interesting how, like, this sort of mil again, how the military got sort of co opted by private contractors. Yeah. Um, I, think, but, I think we've run into that same problem as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in our military, it's always who some, somebody gets a backhander. And that's, yeah. I think that's how it all comes about. Somebody gets a backhander. From all this, um, this contracts yeah. that go um, where they farm out the military to civilians, somebody's getting a backhander, uh, and and yeah. the militaries, the, the the guys 
are the ones that's losing out all the time on it. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate because it, it compromises, could we say it compromises the integrity of the military as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think I, I see that as a as a bit of an issue as well. But of course, it's really, it's really above my pay grade. So yeah, yeah I'm like, well, you know, uh, we can observe all these things, but it's really hard. We don't have the levers of power to pull, I guess, is what, yeah. it, what it boils down to. And so, and that's probably what ultimately led me to, to leaving the Navy. But what I, I spent six years in the Navy, <clears throat> and I did two, three year stints. So the yeah. first three years, I was a single guy. But in that three year stretch, I met a woman who would become my wife. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a random, no, it was actually quite random, actually. My wife is from Australia and this is, we're going back to 2003. So this is like pre, like internet was still in its infancy. You had email, yeah. there was no social media, there was no Facebook and uh, anything like that. But this girl, she met some of my friends in Vancouver and I was living in, in Victoria on Vancouver Island. So they said to her, Hey, you should come see Vancouver Island. It's this really beautiful place. Like you will, you'll really like it. Of course, they call me up and say, Hey, we have this cute girl from Australia. Um, we're kind of busy today. Do you want to show her around? And uh, what, what, uh, what 21 year old male, when he hears the words cute girl from Australia, isn't like, yep, I'm yeah. throwing everything aside to go and show her around and show her a good time. And so of course that's exactly what I did. We, we, we spent about two days hanging out together. Um, you know, we, we flirted a lot. We, you know, it was clear that we had chemistry and connected, but I think in, in both of our minds, it was like, I'm never going to see this person again. So nothing, it, nothing really serious mm. took place. Just, just plenty of flirting and whatnot. But she did hand me a little note. It, was, it said a gum tree note from Michelle. So very Australian. And it had her email address on it and it was a hotmail address. So back in the day, people used to have hotmail. Yeah. <laughs> and Some um, still have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, we started emailing back and forth that year. And then uh, Microsoft came out with MSN Messenger. And so I don't, it probably isn't a thing anymore. They now have like team, but anyways, they had MSN Messenger and that was quite a thing, being able to message back and forth, you know, and, and, but then it got to the point where I said, well, you know, we're doing a lot of messaging back and forth. Why don't we talk on the phone? And so we started doing phone cards. So back in the day, it was, You'd go to a place like, a, I don't know if you have, do you have 7-Eleven in the UK or is that just a North American thing? Yeah, same sort of thing. We have a spa. Yeah, like so. a, just like a corner shop kind of thing. And you'd buy these phone cards and you would either get one with a connection fee or without. So let's say if we knew if we we're going to talk for more than 43 minutes because you do the calculations. Yeah. You pay the connection fee and then, you know, say 1.5 cents a minute. But if you're going to talk for a short call, you use the no connection fee and you pay like 7 cents a minute. Because uh, when you're a poor student, well, I mean, I was in the Navy at this point in time, but I still had student loan debts and things. You're kind of pinching your pennies, you know. And so the whole phone, it was a treat when we got to use the phone card thing. And then and then Skype came out, which was another like sort of revolutionary yeah. thing. Uh, I think that came out in probably 05, if I'm not mistaken. And so, but the connection between, it's a lot, a lot of wires between Australia and Canada. So the connection was pretty bad. So phone cards were like a real treat for us. Um, 
but it became clear that we really had a chemistry because, you know, and her mom would observe, she's like, you talk to your boyfriend. She had a boyfriend at the time. I didn't know about this. She didn't happen to like omit <laughs> that detail in our conversations. Now, to be fair, I'd had a girlfriend at that time and I also omitted that detail, you know? So I think in the back of both of our minds, we were aware that there is something here and I don't want to mm. accidentally throw it away by mentioning that I'm in a relationship. So neither of us wanted to scare the other person away, but because she was in Australia and I was in Canada, it was like, is this going to turn into anything or not? I don't really know, you know, but her mom observed, she's like, you talk to your boyfriend for like 15 minutes and you, you leave the phone call just angry and crying. And then you talk to this guy from Canada and you talk to him for like two hours or three hours. And I just hear you <laughs> giggling away and just laughing. And, and uh, why aren't you in Canada with this guy? And she's like, oh, mom, you know, we're just friends. He, you know, we just like mm. each other and blah, blah, blah. And, and her mom was like, well, that's some serious like. And so <laughs> when I would call, her mom would be like, Michelle. It's serious like, you know, and uh, so that's what she started calling me was serious like. So, you know, in a nutshell. So then here's where it gets kind of interesting. So two and a half years, almost to the day after we had met, she did. Michelle did fly back to Canada to, to see me. And we weren't we weren't official. We weren't like boyfriend, girlfriend. We were just hey, come to Canada. Let's see what happens. I mean, I was OK. I was like pretty certain this is where it was going to go. But I think she'd been kind of burned because she's had a really bad relationship previously. She was a little bit more sort of gun shy. So now remembering that there's no social media yet. And she'd only sent me one picture in two and a half years, like one photograph, an actual physical photograph. So I was like, I met you once and I've only seen one photograph of you. How am I even going to be able to pick like Vancouver airport in July is a busy airport. Like there's yeah. millions of people streaming around this extremely busy. How am I ever going to find you? And so she said, well, maybe I'll wear like a colorful hat. So you'll be able to spot me. <laughs> oh, okay. So, well, you know, at Vancouver airport, it has like, you know, you have to go through customs then you kind of come up those doors yeah. and there's like the railing you have to go like all the way around. And it's kind of a long walk to actually get to where people are waiting for you. But you can see when people come out the door. And uh, so the door is open and out comes this girl in a Tigger costume. Full <laughs> head to toe Tigger costume, hood, tail, everything. Pushing a luggage trolley. And of course, she's like, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 feet away. And there's just so many people. There's no way I can get anywhere closer. But I like, I'm, I know exactly who that is, <laughs> you know. And she's sitting here hopping along behind her trolley being like, this guy better be here. Tell you what, if this guy doesn't show up, you know, like. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, so she's trying to find me and uh, I was like, I don't even know how I can get to her kind of thing. And so we're trying to, you know, uh, and, and so somebody stops her and is like, you know, Hey, uh, you know, because people started cheering, you know, everyone's just like, Hey, here's Tigger. Everyone loves Tigger. You know, everyone's cheering randomly. They have no idea who she is or why she's here, you know, and everyone's cheering away. And, and so anyway, somebody stops her to ask her like why she's wearing a Tigger costume. And I'm kind of able to work my way through the crowd to, to get to her. So it really was like this crazy busy day. And then she turns around and all of a sudden there I am. And so she just like, jumps into my arms you know wraps her legs around me wraps her arms around me and starts hugging me and everybody started cheering and clapping you know because everyone seemed like this tigger you know pushing the luggage trolley and they're all just kind of like you know again tigger's a really fun character and then she jumps into my arms and yeah it was actually quite it was like a movie moment you know um and so so being being the cheeky guy that i am i was like oh well might as well go for it so (laughs) i just kissed her and uh 
And, and that was kind of, that was the start of it. And so of course she insists that she was just coming over to kind of be friends and see if there was anything there. But I'm like, that's a pretty big trip to where, you know, and to come over and wear a Tigger costume and all of this. And so underneath that Tigger costume, because it's pretty, it was, you know, middle of summer, blazing hot. So she yeah. obviously she's not going to wear it underneath her Tigger costume. She had a t-shirt with Winnie the Pooh on it that said, be my honey. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew at that time that, that we were going to be together. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. You've we, been uh, together ever since. Yeah. We we've been together ever since. So, Brilliant. So, bring us up to date. So we 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 left. Uh, we we went back to Australia. So I did my three years in the Navy. You know, I, I developed this relationship. Interestingly, when when she came back, when she came back to Canada, I was actually injured and I wasn't on the ships at the time because I'd had a motorcycle accident. My ankle was injured, and I wasn't allowed to go on the ships because you can't go on an unstable platform mm. with when you can't stand <laughs> properly. So, so we actually spent a lot of time together because here I was getting paid to show up, you know, to an office for, you know, two hours a day to answer a phone that didn't (laughs) ring, you know, just to justify giving me a paycheck while I'm injured. But so we, I ended up um, signing up for a leave of absence and I took a year, one year leave of absence, went back to Australia for a year and uh, um, we got married over there. My parents, my brother flew over to Australia. We had the wedding and all that. Um, And then we flew back to, we flew back to Canada and I did another three year stint in the Navy. But about two and a half years through this stint, I came home one day to my wife and I was like, I don't want to keep doing this, you know, because in the Navy, I was just gone all the time, yeah. whether it was on duty on the base or whether it was being shipped off somewhere. Like I was just gone all the time. I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. This is, you know, you flew halfway around the world to be my wife, you know, you're away from your family and, and whatnot. And I'm gone all the time. And it's just, it's not a great place to be. So I so said, why don't we go teach English somewhere? Just this random idea, you know, you know, I paid off my student loans. We'd saved up some money and I was like, why don't we just go teach English somewhere? And lo and behold, a couple of months later, we're on a plane from uh, Vancouver to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And we, I remember flying down there. We kind of just looked at each other and go like, are we nuts? Like we just packed everything into storage, got on a plane and left. <laughs> we didn't have a plan. And, uh, but Hey, look, we're, we're in our twenties. We're young. We don't have debts. We're just, we were newlyweds while well, we weren't new. We were three years into, into being married, but, mm. uh, at that point, so we, we took off and we lived in a city called Guadalajara. We got some English teaching certifications and taught at a yeah. school there for about six months. Um, and this kicked off like a three year globe trotting adventure. So <laughs> we had no idea that that was, that was what awaited us. Uh, but that's, that's what we got ourselves into. And so, and it's kind of along there that the story takes a little bit of a twist. Um, so we, we visited about 45 countries uh, on five continents over the course of sort of our traveling globetrotting adventure. We lived in about seven different countries, but in, uh, so we lived in like Italy, Poland, uh, Turkey, Mexico. Uh, of course we lived in Canada and Australia. Um, I think there's another one I'm, I'm forgetting, but anyway, you know, it's been, you know, it's been a long time, but, but uh, so we went down to South Africa. Maybe that was what I forgot was South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, we went down to live in South Africa because we met a South African when we lived in Mexico and he had come and lived with us in Poland when we were teaching English there. And so we went down to his place in South Africa because his parents run a, they did run a not-for-profit non-government um, institution helping underprivileged youth develop the skills to be employable in hospitality. So we weren't necessarily teaching English, but it was still kind of a teaching slash facilitation role. But it was down there that I actually got attacked and I was nearly beaten to death um, by Mm -hmm. some gentlemen, um, primarily because of my skin color. Uh, It was, it was, 
they didn't know who I was. They didn't know me from a bar of soap. But I say, in a nutshell, I was a representation of something they felt had historically oppressed them. And this was their way of coming to terms with it. There, you know, there was, I was obviously getting robbed and things like that as well. But it was so it was quite a violent incident. I don't really want to glorify it. But um, so that really triggered a lot for me because I was 29 years old at the time. And, you know, we, we were at that point, like pretty veteran travelers, pretty savvy travelers. Mm -hmm. We'd been in some sort of up and down dicey, hairy situations. We kind of knew how to look out for each other and take out, you know, and we weren't naive even going to South Africa. We kind of, yeah. we'd heard the stories we kind of knew, but we were like, you know, we're going to this place. We have friends, we have trusted friends. We're, we're in like a, a network. And so, you know, we're, we're probably going to be okay as long as we, you know, keep our wits about us. But the problem is like South Africa is only a matter of when, like, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. It right. doesn't matter whether you're South African or not, black, white, doesn't matter. It's going to happen. It just is because that's the nature of uh, of such yeah. a divided society like that. And so um, for me, I, I then <laughs> began suffering from PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. And I developed a food addiction, a binge eating food addiction, as a result of trying to deal with the emotional fallout from going through an experience like this. And, you know, I say like nothing in life really prepares you for that. And so it wasn't as though I set out to, you know, become a binge eating food addict. Yeah. But uh, so that was that was a really, really tough stretch in my life. So we we ended up leaving South Africa, going back to Australia for a few months. I worked on a farm out there to sort of psychologically decompress, went back to South Africa, but just to the Western Cape to have a positive experience. But I got to say, we were pretty happy when we were on the plane leaving Cape Town and, you know, fl flew to Dubai, spent a bit of time there and then flew back to Turkey where my brother lived. And uh, living with my brother in Istanbul, which is a really, you know, it's an amazing city, historically, culturally, like Turkey's a fascinating yeah. country. I, I really love Turkey, you know, and I've the people are very, yeah, really, you know, it's like when you're not a tourist, people are actually very, very hospitable. They, they yeah. love sharing their culture and so on. Like, so we really enjoyed um, Turkey. My brother has lived there now for almost 13 years, I think it is. So he's, he's, out, he speaks Turkish. He teaches at a private school there. Like he's mm. been there. He's, he's as Turkish as he is Canadian, just about, you know, um, <laughs> but I, I decided that, so the thing with like sort of, sort of PTSD and trauma is um, I'd really, I'd really struggled with all of the emotions. So now we go back to, I, I had sort of this strong sort of emotional nature, but this was starting to show up as like fits of like rage and anger and like mm. burning anger. And it wasn't that it was directed at anybody. Uh, I really like it was like a wrestling internal wrestling match constantly fighting to not let this emerge because I didn't want to act out against anybody. But those mm. were sort of the thoughts that were entering my head. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want this rage to sort of overtake me and me to do something stupid and just attack somebody. But it just kept happening. Like the, it just kept welling up within me. Mm. And I didn't, you know, I'd done a little bit of trauma counseling and that was helpful in the sense of, it kind of helped me to make sense of why this was happening because I really felt conflicted about this part of it as well, because I'm not, you know, when I was at like 12 years old, I left behind this idea of fighting. I didn't want to hurt people. And here, 20 years later, this thing, you know, or 15, 16 years later, this is coming back and haunting me, you know, in a way that, you know, I wanted to carry out sort of violent retribution, but it was really to, to understand it. It was, it's like when something is taken from you, the, the instinctive kind of primal response is to try to take that back. And it might not be from yeah. the people who took it from you, but you might do it from somebody else. And it's this sort of cycle of perpetuating hurt. We could say that hurt mm. people hurt people, you know, or the, the abused becomes the abuser, that sort of situation. 
So I realized that, okay, I can't, like, I just don't want to keep living like this. I don't want to keep wrestling with this and so on. And so I made the decision in my head that I was going to forgive these men. I like never saw them again, but I said, I have to forgive them for what they did. And how do you do that? But I, for me, I saw it as the only way out of at least yeah. the rage. And so I, I had to ask the question, what must have happened to them? So how did they get to the place where they were beating people to death? Because they're, they're murderers. They're convicted murderers. Yeah. Um, they've been convicted. I was supposed to go for a court sentencing, but uh, I really just couldn't bring myself to go back there and face them at that time. Mm -hmm. I was too sort of emotionally fragile. But so I had to ask the question, how'd they get there? What happened to them? And sort of cultivating that sense of compassion helped me to move to the place where I could at least forgive them. Now it wasn't to absolve them. Like they, they, you know, yeah. they went to jail, they, you know, but it was for me to be set free, but now I'm stuck. I'd gained 120 pounds. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I went from being athletic to morbidly obese. Like I gained another person <laughs> in terms yeah. of, you know, and, uh, so, so now I'm dealing with like anxiety and depression and just this emotional and, and really I become like self-loathing because mm. I, it felt like my body had kind of betrayed me. Of course, it's not true, but in my mm. mind, I'd went from yeah. being athletic to obese. And so that was, a, that was just a real, and I really felt like I'd lost something as a man, you know, losing that physical ability yeah. and so on. It was a really difficult place to be. So, now I've got to try and figure out, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I find my way out of this? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but what I'll say is this, it's why I'm doing what I do today is because of all of this that I went through. And that's, that's the part about it. So you might hear this and wonder like, cause I think I, I probably sound like fairly jovial and like a good natured fella and whatnot. And you think, boy, you've got this really, like my thirties yeah. were a really difficult like decade. There was a lot yeah. of, struggle in there but because i went through that and and really was willing to commit myself to to the work so to speak yeah. working through this stuff that i'm now in this place where i'm at peace and i think i wanted to share that because i want people to know that there is hope like on the other side of really dark and difficult experiences so i i kind of went through hell and uh found my way out of it so it's kind mm. of why i do what i do today you know i i, I help people in the realm of weight loss but really I often say like weight loss is the cover story, you know, it's, it's the cover story for something bigger. And I really help people with that. So that brings us on to, uh, let's just pull this up for you. For this. Yeah. Freed, uh, Freed, uh, freedom. Uh, freedom Nutrition Coach. Yeah. Yeah. So I run a company now called Freedom Nutrition Coaching. The name came from a client who said to me, I don't want to live in nutrition prison anymore. I was like, oh, mm. I know what you're saying there. And so then I was just taught, like, what do I call this? What do I call this? You know, uh, and, and so I just, you know, freedom, nutrition, freedom, you know, so, but what do I do is, is I coach people, you know, I'm, I'm a qualified nutritionist and I have my background in behavioral psychology from university, but it's like a coach is like a, a guide, I guess, someone who takes mm. you through something, Yeah. but you still have to do the work and develop the skills. So, um, the way that I would describe it is, you know, we, I try to marry the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection. So when we try to create change, we're confronted with our own natural biological resistance to change. Our primal brain wants to keep us safe. So it wants to keep things the same. That's, mm -hmm. it's just how we're wired. 
and and probably it served us well when we lived in much more hostile conditions where familiarity meant safety and unknown meant danger. When we try to connect the psychology of behavior change to the compassion of human connection, I think these are the really, really important pieces here. So maybe it's helpful to touch on to touch on the word compassion and what that actually means. Because I, I felt like I didn't really understand it, especially as a male um, and kind of with masculine culture to talk about something like compassion. Maybe it almost felt like I was um, like I was diminishing myself to show compassion or even self-compassion or self-love because really men, men don't really, they don't really talk about these things. And you know, I didn't do this on my own. I, I, I got to give credit to a coach that I had. So I, I'd hired coaches to try to lose the weight because I had this idea in my head that, you know, if I could just lose the weight, then I'll be happy. Maybe I'll stop hating myself. That was the idea that I had. But it, I was I was struggling because the weight wasn't really the issue. The weight was the symptom. It was a symptom of everything else that had gone wrong. And so I hired this coach thinking, you're going to help me lose weight. And, and that's going to, you know, I'm going to look good. I'm going to look physically good. And, uh, you know, I'll love myself again. Maybe I'll feel like I'm attractive for my wife, all this kind of stuff. And he, he modeled for me compassion in a very unexpected way. I didn't think that I was going to get that, especially from a male coach. And so he really changed my perspective, maybe on what masculinity looks like, because he's like the strong, muscular, fit, athletic guy that I wanted to look like. <laughs> and mm. so he changed for me what masculinity can look like. And maybe I had these ideas in my head that, you know, to be stoic and not to show emotion. And, he, but here I am an empath with, with big emotions. So literally suppressing all my emotions for so long and it was manifesting as like depression and anxiety. And so for him to even give me permission to feel these emotions was really a big thing. So you managed to turn it all around then. Yeah. So now, now you're a slender, fit, gorgeous looking guy. <laughs> well, I, say I still don't look like a fitness model, <laughs> but I've kind of, I've kind of made peace with that because if you look at like to the world of social media and Instagram and you see these fitness models and they're selling their programs and promising yeah. if you do this program, you're going to look like me and so on. And I don't promise that. Like I've lost a bunch of weight. I've lost, lost a hundred pounds. In fact, I joke that I've lost probably like 600 pounds because I've lost and gained so much weight over the years. <laughs> but what I can tell you is I, I'm never going to be 330 pounds again. I'm nowhere near that weight. I'm not going back to that weight. And the ultimate really marker of success is can you get to the place where you lose a significant portion of weight and keep it off? And so I believe it's like the U.S., like National Registry of Weight Statistics or something along the They have some name yeah. where they track people who've lost weight and kept it off. And they sort of track what are the behaviors. And what they're looking for is people who've lost 30 pounds or more and kept it off for more than 12 months. What are the success factors that, that come into play? And so I really created this program called Lifestyle 180. And it's, I, I, I love the name because I think it's so clever because it's 180 yeah. days. But the idea is we're also creating a, a change in direction. It's like if you keep going on the current path you're on, you're going to end up living a very unhealthy life and you're going to end up in a state of really poor health. So if we change the direction, you're going to get to a place of like much better health than you presently enjoy now. But I say that weight loss is a proxy goal. So it's not really about a number on the scale, right? It's no. about what does that weight loss allow you to do that you can't presently do? 
you know, whether it's going on a roller coaster with the kids, ride a bike, hike mountains, play with your grandkids, live without or you know significantly less joint pain. That so we get hung up on the scale. And it's like I almost wish I could just mark it as a side effects might include weight loss, you know, instead yeah. of this feeling this pressure to but you kind of got to meet people where they're at because people still want to lose weight. But it's like, once I start working with you, you're going to figure out that this isn't really about weight loss. That's the truth of it. No, it's, it's all about state of mind. Mm. It's, yeah. It, mindset. It's it, 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 yeah, that, that mindset. And from that mindset, everything else starts dropping into place. You start eating healthy, you start doing healthy things. You, yeah. you, 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 you stop um, suffering from, from, I mean, I mean, for me, it's joint pains and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I spent <laughs> I spent the best part of my life abusing my body in my way, right, and having, right? And having the military abuse it as well. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. I, at the moment, I'm a statistic. Right, a right, right. <laughs> wait list to say a surgeon to talk about replacing some hips and knees and things. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and it's really remarkable, even in terms of surgery, how far that that's actually come as well. You know, yeah. it, it's very impressive. I mean, obviously, there's still quite a recovery time, but it can really restore a lot of a lot of mobility. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I hope I, I don't require it. But, uh, you know, I, if, if done, but I think here's the thing, I've had a couple motorcycle accidents, I've been obese, I've really beat up on my body with powerlifting and things like that. So who knows, yeah. 20 years down the road, and I got a, I've got a one year old right now. I started I started yeah. fatherhood a bit late in life, uh, yeah, but I'll I, be, I that'll keep you that'll keep you running yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, and or make me <laughs> or make me feel really old. Yeah, boy, talk about not getting sleep. <laughs> so for my son, if you watch this twenty years later, kid, I did not get a lot of sleep in this part of your life. Now, obviously, yeah, it's I hope not you your feel fault. guilty. Yeah, yeah, I feel really guilty about this, but he's so cute, like. Even, you know, and here's the beautiful thing about all like the, all that I went through and kind of the work that I did and the emotional work and the mindset work and it is now I have such a like level of patience and compassion and understanding for him. So, you know, he's flipping out, he's yeah. howling because he doesn't want to hold the blue spoon to feed himself, you know, and, <laughs> and it doesn't, doesn't even phase me in the slightest. I'm just like, all right, kid, you, you, it feels like a big deal to you right now. And you're just sharing that. Mm -hmm. The thing I don't want to teach him is that having emotions is a bad thing. I think they should be suppressed. What we want to learn is we can be with these uncomfortable emotions. and It's not the end of the world. And so it's like, he knows the word no. And it's funny. You just say no. Like in other words, don't throw your food on the floor. It goes in your mouth, you know? And he just gives you this look and just starts to ball. How dare you? It's, it's the anger. Like he's got, he's got that little temper. I can see it, you know, coming out. Yeah, How dare you, need, you tell me? Need, you need one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or one of those. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, but you know, it, it's just funny to watch it. Cause I'm like, it's all right. It's all right. You know, I, I five years ago, 10 years ago, I would have got really worked up about him crying about these things. And now I'm just cool yeah. as a cucumber. You know, he can be balling his head off and like, obviously I'm looking, is there, can I figure, is there anything that I can see that's wrong? Does he have gas? Is he upset tummy? You know, is something hurt? Did he bump yeah. him, you know, bump his head? Okay. None of those things. Okay. This is just an emotional thing where, and really yeah. all he needs to know, like, I'm like, the answer is still no kid, but I'm, I'm going to sit with you. I, I'm not going to say no and leave you alone to suffer. I'm going to say no and I'll hold you and you can scream and thump your hands and all that. And I'm just going to hold you and then you're going to calm down and, and we're going to carry on loving each other. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, I mean, clearly, obviously I love being a dad. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And, you know, he, he, he lights yeah. up our life and we just love him with like, 
you know, you really can't put into words. And I, I now kind of get it. People say like, you won't understand until you're a parent, like this kind of love that you develop. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Fantastic. Well, John, I think, um, I think you've gone through the mill a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you they say that life at the back end of it. Well, they say that life begins at 40. And I'm like, oh, you know, there's so much to that. Like, I've been through a lot in the first 40 years of my life. Well, really, you know, like the first 20 years, I think we're actually like pretty good. Like, obviously, we had some yeah. financial and economic hardship, and it was tough growing up with not a whole lot and, and, and stuff like that. But I think that helped develop a little bit of character. Um, but the next 20 years, boy, things got really interesting. And it's like, so now I'm kind of excited for what lies ahead because I'm in such a good place, you know, emotionally, mentally, you know, um, I still have health goals I'm working on. Um, you know, I still have business goals that I'm working towards because running a business through a pandemic is not such an easy task. You know, uh, I feel deeply fortunate that I still have my business when many people have lost theirs, you know, but your business is, is it online? It is. Yes. It's exclusively online now. So, okay. um, and, and really I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a couple of different streams of income. Look, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not, I'm not wildly rich. I'm not one of these gurus telling you, Hey, do what I do and make millions of dollars. But, um, because I'm really good at what I do and I'm good at what I do because I have a brain for it. I, like I said, I can't, I can't take the credit. Yeah. I got it free of charge, but I've got a really good brain for this. I've got the life experience having lived this. Um, I have wonderful mentors in my life. Um, but because I'm good at what I do, I have also, you know, got some contracts with some really good companies that help to keep me like with, with steady work, yeah. you know, and, uh, there's something to be said for, for just like, when you know what you love to do and you're passionate about yeah. it and you pursue it and you develop mastery, like I've really, you know, I think I'm a natural coach and teacher, if I could say that, but I've worked really hard and I've worked with a lot of mentors to develop that skill and to really go from being sort of a diamond in the rough to actually being really good at it. And yeah. I think we shouldn't shy away from becoming really good at something. And, and so I say to people, like I'm a world-class coach that nobody knows about, but I know I'm a world-class coach because I've worked with world-class coaches and even coached world-class yeah. coaches. So I know that I'm at that level. It's just that I got no fame attached to my name and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, yeah. Might come from this podcast. Yeah, there, there you go. You know, maybe, maybe a, uh, you know, one one person hears this and goes, "Hey, you know what? I need to know a bit more about this guy." So, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. It so. doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But hey. at the end of the day, I mean, look, I got a beautiful wife who loves me. There. I got a gorgeous little boy who loves me. Yeah. I get to do what I love. I, I get to podcast, which I love talking to people, as you may have discovered. You know, no. like. <laughs> yeah surprise uh, i have three podcasts of my own because i just really enjoy conversation and i also enjoy being on the other side of the mic and exploring other people's stories right so i have one called yeah. between the before and after and that's about exploring people's stories of overcoming maybe they overcame cancer or or the loss of a loved one or things like that and how did you get through and keep living your life you know mm -hmm. um it's not so black and white is another one of my shows. And that's just, you know, I feel like we lost the ability to have civil discourse and civil disagreement and, and nuanced discussion yeah. around topics. And so I thought, well, I want to create a space. I could complain about it or I could just do yeah. something and just create do a space. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I, I'd love to have people uh, tune in and listen to a couple of those and maybe I'll become a famous podcaster, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> we will uh, strive in to do that. 
Yeah, yeah. But you know, like, so it's like, I get to do what I love. You know, I'm not a millionaire. Yeah. Uh, I still have goals. Like I still have struggles in life, but I've got, you know, a beautiful marriage, a beautiful son. Uh, I do what I love. You know, life is life. I'm in a really good place, even though the world's in a difficult place. And it's yeah. not easy, but I'm really grateful for where I'm at. Excellent. Well, John, I'm going to wrap that up there. Yeah. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this last hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure, man. Okay. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories.